Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. All right, as we're recording this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, yeah, we're still in a global pandemic regarding COVID-19. And here in the United States, uh, there's this thing known as the emergency use authorization that has become, I guess, for lack of a better term, popular these days for things like masks and ventilators and IVDs and and other types of of testing in situations. You know, there's a lot of good that comes from from this, from an EUA perspective and the responsiveness of companies to deliver products and services to, to help address the situation. But there's some side effects to this as well. And on this episode of Global Medical Device Podcast, Erica Loring, a medical device guru at Greenlight Guru, and I chat about some of the the good, the bad, the pros, the cons, the the impact that EUA has been having on the medical device industry. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And joining me today is one of our medical device gurus, Erica Loring. Erica, welcome. Hey, John. Thank you. Uh, I'm excited about today's talk. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So folks, let me tee it up a little bit uh, for you, and then we'll dive right in. You know, we're in a, well, continue to be in an interesting time in in the world with uh, COVID-19 and pandemic and and all of those sorts of things. And there was this... this, uh, regulatory pathway, it wasn't new, but started to emerge uh, and become more well-known as a result of COVID-19, known as the Emergency Use Authorization, or EUA. And, you know, Erica's been studying, I guess, this topic and observing and, and consuming information about, you know, things that are happening in this space. So I thought we would dive into this a little bit. And and kind of talk about some pros and cons and some of the good, maybe some of the could be better uh, scenarios. So, Erica, I guess I'll, I'll let you kind of start the conversation. There's been a huge influx of EUA applications, for, ranging from things like ventilators to masks to to IVD and lab developed tests. What kind of um, effect has this had in general on uh, FDA? Yeah. So, I mean, I could sit here and probably talk to you all day about it because I think a little bit about my background briefly, if if no one listened into you know, the last podcast, but I've been a regulatory professional for 10, uh, 12 years now, 15 years industry experience with quality, but in between, you know, my time this year, I've been doing a lot of consulting for firms for PPE, masks, IVD, things of that nature. So I actually put through a couple EUAs myself and some 510Ks for masks and so on. And so I have a little bit of experience with this new thing. You know, um, these companies come to me and think I'm some expert in EUA. But I don't really think there is an expert in EUA right. because it's it's new the whole pandemic and i mean the eua like you said isn't new but we haven't had to experience that yet so 
The FDA, you know, I think there's three tiers that we're going to see effect. And we're going to see effects of this EUA at the FDA level. You're going to see the effect that it's going to reach companies and it's going to reach the consumer. And the FDA, you know, they have, it's government funded. We are, you know, they have a limited amount of resources as well. And they've just been hit really hard with such a huge influx of companies you know, trying to get in not only their 510Ks as well, because there's money to be made, a lot of money to be made with these PPE gowns, gloves, masks, uh, ventilators, along with the IVDs. And the FDA is just, you know, scrambling to fill people and move people around to allocate them into these EUA reviews and also the 510Ks that also applying to this emergency as well. So we're seeing, I have read somewhere the other day that they are, they were proving one IVD test, in vitro diagnostic test for, for COVID a day, which is insane. It is insane. That, that's crazy. That's a lot. <laughs> so, you know, their review periods on other products are getting slowed down. And they're, you know, I, I read that they're concerned and, and it's fairly validated that the, the quality of their reviewing is also going down, not only with the EUAs, but the, the 510Ks because their resources are so limited. And it is important to still meet their timelines that they, they set forward, uh, the review periods. So the EUA is looked at, it's going to be a, you know, a quicker, faster to market submission, um, but they still have to do their due diligence. And it's, it's especially challenging with all the companies coming in from overseas. You know, especially China, to get a good quality review in. Um, so they're seeing, and and I myself have done a couple EUAs, and and they're, I mean, they're meaty. They're not. It's not completely lack of information. You have to do your supporting information. You're just not doing your full five ten k submission with a predicate device. Um, I was going to say, let's unpack uh, some of that. So. Yeah. Um, you know, there there is uh, FDA publishes their uh, statistics every year about number of pre-submission. Oh, actually, I don't know if they report the number of pre-submission, but they do report the volume of 510Ks and PMAs and de novos and et cetera, et cetera. And not that it's a flat line. I mean, the, the year over year, these the volume of 510Ks and, and other regulatory submissions do increase. Mm-hmm. So we've got that that's that that trend, if you will, and then you throw in something like you know EUA, and that that's been. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's even a statistic on this either, but no. uh, I just know anecdotally I've talked to so many people uh, that are pursuing EUA. So this is in addition to the the normal growth of of 510k and other regulatory submissions. Now you're piling on additional regulatory submissions and it's a FDA has a relatively finite number of resources to your point. But, you know, it's like if you were to prioritize or triage, do I look at this 510k for, you know, something non-COVID related or do I look at this EUA that's COVID related? It puts sort of puts the, the agency in a precarious situation of sorts. They oh, have to, absolutely. They have to peel people away from, you know, some 510Ks that are not COVID related to focus on EUAs. So they have to reallocate these resources and it's created a lot of challenges. And and one other thing I'll I'll throw in to your point about the review time. I mean, 
you know, it's pretty well known that a uh, 510K is uh, supposed to take 90 days of, uh, to, you know, from the point of submission to clearance with the agency. You know, sometimes there's a little bit of back and forth. And again, these are published statistics and I don't mm-hmm. remember the the current average, but it, you know, it's somewhere in the 120 day range, mm-hmm. give or take. Exactly. So, you know, the, the EUA, I don't remember when it officially uh, went into effect with respect to COVID, but let's call it March, April ish timeframe. And, mm-hmm. you know, as we're recording this, it's uh, late October, early November ish. So, you know, that's less than the 120 days, if my math is correct, or right at the 120 days, give or take, depending on when these things went in, you know? So, mm-hmm. so the fact that these EUA applications are getting through that process very quickly, I mean, of course, on one side, you're like, well, it's serving a need, a global pandemic need. And on the other extreme, it's like, yeah, but it's happening so fast, you know? It is happening so fast, Yeah. And, you know, the FDA tries to put the specific experienced experts on, on the review teams, you know, me as a, as a, maybe a person who's done some IVD work, they're probably not going to throw me on to an MRI uh, machine to review, you know, they're, they're going to want to have people with industry experience reviewing and, and critiquing these applications. But I don't think that's going to be the situation right now because, they're just pulling resources in when they where they can. So, yeah, I, I think the FDA is definitely feeling the pressure and the strain, and and that's going to have a trickle effect, you know, maybe to the consumer. I think I, I brush on that is you know they've revised this EUA guidelines a few times since right. since um, I believe I think the the first revision I saw was April. So. At one point, they didn't accept China, and now they do accept China. But then they started testing these masks coming in um, and ventilators coming in, and they weren't meeting the criteria that they claimed, you know, in the submission. And now they don't allow China again. And now they, the ones that do, who are already on Annex A, or is it Annex A, or is it, I think it's Annex A, which is essentially the list that yeah. um, of companies, manufacturers that are allowed or involved in this EUA. But so they're testing and challenging these masks um, as they arrive in from China. So, and, you know, I talked about the IVD tests as well. Those are getting reviewed at, at, at record time as well. And, you know, that has a huge variance of acceptability and sensitivity. We saw some sensitivity coming in the very beginning, I don't know, down to 1600 sensitivity level, all the way up to 180. So you know these tests are not the same and there's hun- and and there's hundreds of them they're getting approved every day one a day um so the varying level of of um quality could be a concern or a sensitivity sure. um for for the consumers as well just because of the speed uh of these reviews so we're going to see quite the interesting ripple effect across the board yeah i mean and I would say, you know, what I've reviewed is, speaking of quality, it's it's not that one is good or bad per se. It's it's really an unknown, you know, right. and nobody knows for sure. And one of the things I do appreciate about the traditional regulatory submission processes 
is the rigor that's expected and required. Right. And EUA seems to rem- remove uh, some of that rigor. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I know you do have to perform your testing. So I did a couple EUAs for for masks and you do have to do all the testing that's required, biocompatibility testing, your uh, fluid resistance, all that uh, filtering. But I don't think it's going to be nearly as challenged as as a 510K. And you're not sitting here and comparing, contrasting to a predicate. You know, I think I have a couple of clients actually with Greenland Guru who are putting ventilators and masks through and they're a little bit unique and they don't know quite where they fit in and what pocket. So it's definitely a new situation and they're going to go through an EUA as well. Yeah. You don't have to fit in a pocket. You can be kind of a little bit of a de novo, not maybe like, maybe not traditional de novo, but you know, people are making their own little pathways. Um, well, to your... To your point, I mean, with EUA, the the notion of a, a predicate is is not a a firm and fast criteria requirement, nope, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. You have to fit on the product codes, that, right. or you have to fit in the product codes that are allowed or involved in the EUA. Like I said, we have a couple of mass companies that are very creative, um, and I have no doubt of their their quality. The ones that we're working with at Greenlight, but you know, it's like they fit into two different categories under respirators and masks. And, you know, they're kind of just picking one and, and going with that. So that would be a little bit different if you're doing a 510K, you're comparing contrasting and contrasting and all your predicates and, you know, back and forth with the FDA. Whereas in EUA, you're just like, ah, it's closest to this product code and it's in the EUA, let's just go with that. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and I guess maybe to the layperson, and I'll I'll, um, I'll offer this, and you can say no. That's you're thinking about it wrong, or yeah, that's right. But it seems like there's there the risk, if you will. I mean, is it? Well, I guess even as I'm about to say it, I'm questioning, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. It seems like a risk with like a mask might be less so, or or completely different profile than like a, an IVD test. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I mean, you know, it's tough. If you're claiming that you're KN95 or N95 and you're filtering 95% particles, right? Um, that's pretty important. And, you, and and these masks are getting sold into point of care in hospitals, <clears throat> surgical units and things like that. And then, you know, there's a huge shortage of supply a few months ago that hospitals could not get the appropriate masks that they typically go through, you know, they have their purchasing uh, catalog that I'm sure they just pick out of. So they were forced to kind of get creative and, and find masks through third parties and, and, you know, direct suppliers and manufacturers coming in from overseas. So in that case, it's a little bit concerning because, you know, if they're not filtering the 95%, are they being exposed in a hospital setting right. where they're constantly seeing COVID, that could be a little bit concerned. But and then you have your IVDs that false positive, false negatives at this point in time. I mean, false positive isn't isn't that scary. Of course, it'll affect our numbers and our statistics, but the false negatives would be more of the concern, right? 
For sure. I mean, speak yeah. a little bit more about, I mean, compare and contrast like an IVD test result that's either fa- false positive and false negative. I, you know, just to, to give some clarification for, for those listening who may yeah. not be uh, intimately familiar with the pros and cons or the, the risk of, of either scenario. Mm-hmm. So typically a, a false negative is going to, you know, we're, we, we do IVD tests and you think cancer, and obviously that's going to be a delayed, uh, delayed care of getting your appropriate drugs and treatment. Uh, for COVID, you're a false negative. You know, there isn't a whole lot going on with point of care. I mean, they are, they, they're learning some things of antibiotics and other drugs that are helping lessen the symptoms, but you're kind of just going through it. But yeah, false, false negative, you know, you're, you're going, you're going out into the world and spreading this on to who knows how many people. False positive is, on the other hand, typically if you ha- we're talking something a little more common or serious as cancer, if you get a false positive, what kind of you know treatment are you going to potentially undergo? Um, and and mental stress, obviously, you just got told you you have cancer. That's 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 pretty scary. So false positive for COVID. Sometimes you know we see we we hear about this um, your symptoms. You know you're asymptomatic. So if you're told you you're false positive or positive and you have you feel as though you're probably asymptomatic, the worst case scenario is okay, we're gonna stay inside for two weeks. But it's going to affect our numbers and so on and so forth. So I mean, I would rather get a false positive than a false negative. And those sensitivities are definitely taken into consideration when you do your applications. Yeah. Thank you for elaborating on that. The other really interesting thing for me on, on this whole EUA thing is the the volume of of companies who have submitted EUA applications who are not and never have been a medical device company. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts about that? <laughs> uh, that's that one is near and dear to my heart because I've been in IVD companies who go from research use only RUO to IVD, um, and that's you know falling under the twenty one CFR eight twenty since it's complying with um, ISO thirteen forty five, and usually it's a pretty big ramp up. You you have to put together your quality management system. You have to make sure you have the pr- appropriate resources. You're doing tech transfers, manufacturing transfers, scaling up, and that's not a quick thing. But these companies are thinking, let's throw in our EUA submission so we can get these sales. A lot of them already probably have sales kind of pending an EUA um, lined up. This is a lot of my my companies I consulted for did, so they're really pushing to get this through. But what does that look like for the companies who are going essentially zero to sixty? zero to 120. It is, you know, a challenge of, do you have the right resources? What's your manufacturing capabilities? What's the quality going to look like when you're, you know, pushing out millions and millions of masks or hundreds of thousands of tests? Do you have the right personnel with the right experience? Do you have enough personnel? So I had consulted for uh, an IVD company and they actually wanted to hire me on as their regulatory director. And going in, I realized I just, I'm not ready. I'm going to be a regulatory director. I would be a regulatory director, a quality director, a operations director. I would be incoming and receiving. I would be QA. I would be QC. 
uh, it, it was, you know, these companies don't really understand the resources that are important. Um, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, if, if you read the uh, latest EUA guidance, and I don't remember, so forgive me if it's quite this explicit, but if you read it, it gives the impression that some of the, the you know, 820 quality management system requirements, the regulations, some of those are lifted or, or it's, it's a being allowed for companies yeah. to be a little bit more lax than that. And, and right. you know, that's kind of a head scratcher for me. I, I mean, I... yeah. Part of me gets it because it's like, okay, well, you know, if if, if there's a, truly this huge need, then obviously uh, we need to figure out what obstacles can be removed. But at the same time, you know, to your earlier points, it's like, well, how do we know the quality of these these products and these tests, et cetera? Right. And that's what a quality system is intended to do is is to put the the proper processes and checks and provisions in place to ensure that the product that's being manufactured and delivered to to those who need it is is the highest quality and the safest most effective it can possibly be so it's it's this consistent yeah it's like this weird thing and it and it's concerning uh, in some regard or in many regards actually mhm it is it is yeah like you said it, it's not required for them to have a registered medical device facility and it's not required for them to have ISO 13485. They're encouraged to follow CGMPs, you know, current good manufacturing practices, but there's no one checking. There's no auditors that are going to see, okay, well, yeah, your facility passes, it meets these criteria. We've done an audit. Uh-uh, it's not, you're swearing, you're, you're putting your little signature that you're, you're going to follow these guidelines, but there's no way you can put a full quality management system in place. The company I had consulted for and, and they wanted to hire me, they it, I, they didn't even know what a CAPA was. They didn't, oh they didn't have, yeah, they didn't even know design controls at all, zero at all. They didn't even know they existed. Yeah, there's there's definitely concerns and they're they're growing, they're outgrowing what their capabilities are. Yeah, um, which it, is. I mean, and, and something, sorry to cut you off there, but yeah. something, I mean, even though there may be some some more uh, lax uh, criteria with respect to a quality management system, I've also know that there is an expectation that one is should be uh, doing proper design and development design controls. You should have provisions in place from a CAPA perspective. Mm-hmm. These are not right. things that should be viewed as optional. So that is super alarming to, to know that, that companies that are entering into yeah. this aren't following best practices from a design control perspective. And, they, and they're not equipped or set up from a process perspective to be able to handle, you know, potential post-market challenges and quality mm-hmm. events. That is concerning. It is. It is. And I don't want to sit here and say no test is, is trustworthy. You know, it's definitely not the point. Um, we have a lot of the bigger companies too, the Roche, BD, Beck and, you know, Beck and Dickinson, What's the other one here in San Diego? Um, Fisher. Uh, they're all putting, you know, I'm guessing their products are, they're not cutting corners. We, I'm sure there's a lot on the market that's very trustworthy, that there's great quality. I think, yeah, there's just a small room for concern um, with the EUA and, and all prospects from, you know, FDA consumers uh, and these companies. Um but yeah, yeah, it's 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 a trying time right now, and it it's going to be interesting to see the long term effect of this. Yeah, for sure, um, folks. Let me take a, a brief pause 
and uh, remind you uh, that I'm talking with uh, Erica Loring. Erica is one of the medical device gurus at Greenlight Guru. And speaking of Greenlight Guru, did you know that uh, the medical device quality management system platform um, provided provided by Greenlight Guru is the only medical device quality management system on the market today. It's designed specifically and exclusively for the medical device industry. And mm-hmm. our, our gurus like Erica and, and the other gurus on, on the Greenlight Guru team, they are part of uh, the resources that are used to help shape and design and, and and influence that entire platform. You know, Eric has been in the industry for, for 15 years. I've been in the industry for 22 years. All of our gurus have been in the industry for a long time. And so that experience, that knowledge, that expertise is influential in shaping this product. And, you know, as Eric and I are talking about EUA, this is a, a relevant, timely um topic in the industry. All of us keep our fingers on the pulse of what's happening in the world from, from the medical device industry perspective. And that, that constant knowledge that keeping our fingers on the pulse is, means that the platform that we're providing to you is always up-to-date, state-of-the-art, meets your needs as a medical device company. So if you're interested in learning more how the Greenlight Guru medical device quality management system might be an asset to help your business, I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru. And if you are one of these uh, companies that's exploring or interested in pursuing EUA, we have expertise on staff for that. And we can help you ensure that you're not cutting corners with design controls and CAPAs and other quality system uh, criteria through this platform. So go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. And we'd be happy to have a demo and a conversation with you so that you can learn more about why this is so important to the health of your company. All right. So let's talk a little bit about, and we've hinted at a little bit, but the impact that EUA has had on non-EUA types of products. I mean, I I think I read an article recently that... uh, I think it was uh, Dr. Sharon at CDRH had made some sort of comment, and don't quote me on this, but this is my recollection. I guess you can confirm if you've read something similar, but mm-hmm. that that this has had a, a negative impact uh, on other non-EUA uh, devices that have been submitted into the queue. I mean, there's been delays that have been received mm-hmm. from from FDA, and it's pretty well publicized, at least for a long period of time, and I suspect there's still some some ramifications of this too, that clinical trials uh, in a lot of cases uh, had been put on hold indefinitely because, you know, a lot of hospitals were were sequestering their staff and, you know, there, was, there weren't mm-hmm. resources available and that sort of thing. So what have you seen or heard or observed as far as impact for non-EUA products? Sure. Yeah, I had been working on a couple of products um, on the side of 510Ks and submissions that had nothing to do with the EUA. And the turnaround time was definitely lagging. Actually, I'm still waiting to hear. So I started at Greenlight just a few months ago. And I think the week before I uh, started, I submitted a 510K. And um, I think that's why I was like, oh, you know, I need like two weeks before I can hop on board because I was wrapping up some 510K stuff. So yeah, that delay, I'm, I'm definitely still feeling it. I still have my client kind of big me at least once a week if I've heard any news from the FDA. But not only that, it was really challenging to get some of the biocompatibility testing done because there's so much biocompatibility testing 
they're just getting pushed through for gowns, gloves, masks, yeah. and any other um, ventilator uh, situation for the for um, not only the EUA but other five ten k submissions for um, you know COVID related products. So costs went up, turnaround time, quality of of how often I could hear back from these labs. Um, you know, there's a few good big ones, and they're 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 at their max capacity. They're I think we waited 10 weeks or something like that wow. um, just to get on the the timeline of when we can, we can get on test. Wow. So, and you know, that's on top of a eight to 10 week turnaround time of, of completion. For sure. So yeah, we're, it's the impact is felt all around. Also um, I worked for a couple of companies who, who were doing kind of like healthcare, beauty, hand sanitizer, shampoos, things like that. Uh, I do all the formulating on the side. And it was really hard to find bottles, pumps, caps. You know, it was getting down to they're getting a little desperate of buying a huge bulk supply of, of product from or pumps or caps from China and hoping for the best. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it's reflected all around. Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, the supply chain... Supply chain is hard, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, in, uh, I was uh, a few months back. I was doing some work with a, um, a potential EUA product that was a um, a ventilator. Uh, a, a, we'll just say a low cost ventilator, and that was what we experienced. I mean, they were trying to get print circuit boards and you know just different sheet metal i mean sheet metal and plastic and all of you know everything that you can imagine that would go into a product a lot of those um suppliers uh they were quoting lead times that were you know ridiculous and like yeah. half a year in some cases yep. i was like this is not good and you know and that, and that was for yeah. an eua thing and you know if, i can't imagine being a company today that's you know because this is the thing i mean while you know the world sort of I don't, I don't want to say stop, but it certainly changed because of this. But at the same time, we all know that that this is we don't know when it's going to to end, and we know that it will end at some point in time in the not too distant future. But if I'm a medical device company, I'm in this for the long play. Uh, I, I'm right. not I'm not just worried about the next month or two months. I'm I'm thinking about the entire. Uh, life cycle of my company and the products and the portfolio that I'm building and all these sorts of things. So as best as possible, I'm trying to maintain and operate business as usual. And now all of a sudden I can't because there are delays with FDA. There are delays with biocompatibility testing. There are delays for my supply chain. So this really is uh, the, the, the downstream effects of this have have been very painful, especially for uh, a lot of small businesses, which in the medical device industry, uh, this is a, a fact that that few people realize. Something like eighty percent of medical device companies have fifty or fewer employees. So, mm-hmm. the, those fifty or fewer employee companies are feeling this in a big, big way. Absolutely, yeah. It, we're seeing a butterfly effect, uh, and it's reaching all corners of of the medical device community and, and people in general. Um, so. Yeah, it's been interesting to be in the thick of this and being involved. All right. I guess to kind of wrap up the conversation today, I mean, we've talked about the 
some of the challenges or, or uh, the concerns, if you will, from an EUA perspective. We've talked a little bit about the impact uh, on non-EUA medical devices. You know, I guess get your crystal ball out, if, if you will. But you know, what what happens after we get th- through this pandemic and you know the the EUA condition is lifted from the agency? What happens to all these products that are on the market? In the, yeah. uh, that got EUA, what, what, what happens next with them? I mean, it's expected that once the EUA is lifted, they are going to remove those. Uh, these companies will have to remove their product from market if they didn't continue forward with a 510K. So um, that's going to have a huge effect on companies as well. Are they going to downsize? Are they going to remove their product from market? Is there going to be a grace period where they can submit 510Ks to keep them on market? Um, All my clients that I'd worked with in between uh, Greenlight, I strongly suggested that they continue on with a 510K just because you already did all the testing for an EUA. You have to go through all, you have to include biocompatibility as well. And I think a lot of companies aren't used to that, but might as well just go through with a 510K if you've already done most of the work. Um, But yeah, I think we're going to see an interesting effect. Um, You know, the IBD company I referred to that I, I, I did some consulting work for, they put all their eggs in one basket in the COVID basket. They're thinking they're in it for, you know, the next X amount of years and they're just going to rely on COVID tests. But they're, you know, one of 200 probably COVID tests at this point. Um, so who knows what's going, how this is going to disrupt the market once it's lifted. So what advice uh, would you give um, a, a company that, you know, decided to to enter the med device space that wasn't a medical device company mm. who successfully obtained uh, an EUA for their mask or their ventilator or, or their, their IVD. What advice would you give them? What should they be doing now? Because mm-hmm. we, I think we all know that, that there is going to be a finite period of time where EUA is allowed into to what we've right. talked about. At some point in time, I, I don't know if it's not going to be tomorrow in all likelihood, but it will be soon where that is lifted and it's not a thing anymore. What advice would you give this EUA company that may be in that oh, scenario? Man. Yeah, that's a great question. I You'll hear me talk about this up and down and, and continuously is resources. Find yourself uh, uh, an experienced quality and or a regulatory person to help you develop a quality management system to help you submit these these submissions, whether it's a 510K or the EUA right up, right up front. But I really, you, you can't undervalue experienced industry, um, industry experience. Yeah, just, just find yourself the right resources. And, and, and again, quality and regulatory people have a lot on their plate. More than likely, you're going to need more than one of those experienced people. But yeah, resources is going to be a huge thing. And invest in understanding what a quality management system is and all the things that come with it. Um, design controls, risk analysis, uh, CAPAs, uh, management reviews. Those are all put in place for very good reasons. And it's not just to check the boxes. I promise you, your company will do better if you fully invest from the top down in, in the quality management and resources. 
That's great advice. And the, to wrap this up, one of the things that I would like to, to throw out and offer uh, is less uh, to the medical device company or the EUA company, but, but more to the, to the consumer, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the patient, the, the human in the United States. Um, and maybe this sounds a little too skeptical, um, but you know, when, I, when my eyes became open um, to the medical device industry many, many years ago, uh, I, you know, I've, I would find myself in a, a hospital uh, or a doctor's office and like fascinated by everything that's on the wall or on the counter. Oh, like, yeah. oh, that's a medical device. That's, I wonder who mm-hmm. makes that. And oh, right. look, that's a product that I was involved with. So, you know, sometimes, you know, I would even like after that visit or whatever, I would go and, and do my own research. Is this a good product? Is this a bad yep. product? Um, so I tried to inform myself as, as a patient. And, and, you know, as my uh, family members and friends, they've had different procedures. You know, I would say, Hey, do you, do you know what product they're using? And mm-hmm. what about this? What about that? And, and, yeah. you know, I, I realized that I'm might be a little weird there, but I would encourage, yeah. um, you know, the consumer that, you know, everyday average person to do a little bit of homework. You know, yeah. if you're going to go get this test, try to find out, um, the, uh, more about it, you know, the integrity yeah. of it, the information about it. A lot of this information is in the public domain. So do your homework because, you know, you, you won't have confidence that this, this product or this test or whatever the case may be is of the highest integrity possible. So that, that's my words of wisdom for, yep. you know, citizens in, in this country and, and frankly, the world to, to consider. Erica, thank you so yeah. much. This is, uh, I, I, to your point, we could probably talk for the rest of the, of the day on oh, this. And absolutely. And, and I guess we'll we'll continue to keep our finger on the pulse and see how this situation and unfolds over the, the coming weeks and months. And uh, maybe we'll we'll follow up on this and in a future session. But folks, thank you so much for uh, listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, the number one podcast in the medical device industry. Continue to to sh- spread the word, share this with your friends and colleagues, and. Uh, uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this and, and the insights of, of some of our medical device gurus, uh, Erica Loring, John Spear. Um, thank you so much. Thank you.